0: Unlock the power of your mind. This is Provocative Enlightenment with Alvin Taylor. Welcome and thank you for joining us today. The next hour is devoted to learning something more, not just about the world of shoes and ships and sealing wax, but about how, what, and why we believe as we do. A time for those willing to question what they think they know or what they may believe. Those willing to be uncertain for an hour. I'm Eldon Taylor and this is Provocative Enlightenment. All right, our chat room is open and my partner Ravinder awaits you there now. You can log on by going to ProvocativeEnlightenment.com forward slash chat. We do have a great chat room, so Ravinder, tell us all about it, please.
1: We have a great chat room, a great group of people. Uh, They all provide their own perspectives, so we always learn. I always learn bunches from them, Um, plus the fact it's just a really fun group, so we have a laugh at the same time. Um, So if you can, if your boss isn't going to get too angry with you, then do come join us at ProvocativeEnlightenment.com forward slash chat.
0: Everybody needs a boss like me, huh? You're always on the thing.
1: Yeah, you're wonderful. I've (laughs) got the best boss in the world, I do. Oh, yeah.
2: (laughs) (laughs) When we're
0: off the air. Okay, in today's spotlight, I would like to discuss an issue that shouldn't be an issue, in my opinion, and that's the idea of Christmas wishes. It seems that for the past few years, we have been encouraged to send holiday wishes instead of those... Of a Merry Christmas variety. There are reasons behind this, but to me the most interesting comes down to one of politics. According to a P.R.R.I. poll, 61% of Republicans are in favor of Merry Christmas, while 66% of the Democrats favor a secular greeting such as Happy Holidays. Why the political divide? According to the Atlantic, it's a bit ironic that folks would have a preference between the two greetings at all. They write, and I quote, Ironically, it's a Christian-friendly greeting at its root. Holiday stems from the old English for a holy day. For much of the United States history, it would have been given and accepted by Christians without a bat of the eye, understanding that the holidays in question were those of Advent or perhaps Christmas and the Gregorian New Year. Only relatively recently has it become a catch-all for people of other religions. I think it's more than that, however. It appears to be an attack on the meaning of Christmas, or the Christ in Christmas. Now, I fully understand those who might find it unfair that as a predominantly Christian country, we have celebrated Christmas and failed to formally designate an official holiday for such celebrations of of the same kind by non-Christians. Still, legislating additional holidays should be the answer and or changing the official nature of Christmas at a legislative level instead of substituting a generic greeting for what is officially a Christian holiday. Unfortunately, in my view, the secular movement has so encouraged the abandonment of Christ in Christmas that today we have substituted Walmart, Sears, J.C. Penny, Costco, Amazon and the like for Christmas. It seems Christmas has been reduced to a commercial enterprise with Black Friday, Cyber Monday, etc. dominating the mood of our nation. Personally, taking the Walmart out of Christmas and replacing the spirit of Christmas with the Christ of Christmas serves the best interest of all faiths. It was Christ who admonished that whatever we do unto the least of our brethren, we do unto him. It was Christ who suggested turning the other cheek, finding forgiveness in our hearts, loving one another, and so forth. How this message becomes the target for change in the name of secularism fails to make any sense to me. For our secular friends argue that to be a good person, we should be forgiving, charitable, moral, and otherwise behave in an ethical fashion. So the message seems dissonant to say the least, unless what they're arguing is we don't need Christ in order to be virtuous. Now, if that's a message, I totally agree. But then why argue against a celebration that honors exactly that? For me, it's Merry Christmas to all of you, and it is my wish that the Christ in Christmas be remembered, for in so doing, we might just leave the Walmart out of Christmas and return to the real meaning behind this special occasion. My thoughts anyway, what are yours, Ravinder?
1: Well, I think you've picked on one of my own uh, pet peeves, you know, I was brought up in england at a time where there wasn't the same separation of church and state and i wasn't christian but the rest of the country celebrated christmas and i was often on the outside looking in and wishing that i could join and i really liked it when people wished us merry christmas because it made it more inclusivistic i mean they allowed us in Um, And I enjoyed the Christmas tree and the nativity scene. I like the season of hope and goodwill to all men. I like that part of it. Quite frankly, the commercial Christmas of today isn't doing it for me. So I'm all for trying to remember what it's really about. And yeah, so I'm very much a Merry Christmas.
0: Well, we'll be discussing what Christmas is all about, some of its heritage, its traditions, its symbols, its myths, but most importantly, what the spirit of Christmas is supposed to be about today. Okay, every week I read some of your letters as our way of involving you while paying respect to the very important role you play in making this show successful. Last week our show featured Professor Barbara Oakley and we discussed her work and book, Mind Shift. Janice wrote... I just love Professor Oakley's humility. She not only made me feel better, since I have always thought of myself as a slow learner, but she offered meaningful solutions. I signed up for a course. Thank you, Eldon, for this great show. Richard remarked, I love, love, love what she just said. A misplaced overconfidence. C.B. wrote another great interview that was a little bit short. A teaser for following up on the guest materials, eh? This sounds like a good way to get my brain geared up on new learning. Moving on, Candace wrote, I saw a woman this week who sang your praises. She has gained much from your audios. I know you reach a lot of people, but thought you'd like to know. I could tell by what she said. She didn't know you were local to this area, and I didn't let on. Well, thanks, Candace. A.J. wrote to change your subconscious mind and the way it talks to you. Check out Eldon Taylor and his Inner Talk programs. I've experienced phenomenal success with his Inner Talk programs, and recommend them to everyone. Thank you, A.J. A.J. and April wrote. I always love your newsletters. Been a customer since 1993, and I just can't get enough. Now, for all of you out there, our newsletter is fresh, informative, and free. Go to innertalk, I-N-N-E-R-T-A-L-K dot com and sign up for your free copy today. Okay, that's all the time we're going to take for letters, but we do love your comments, so please keep them coming. You can opine by writing to me at Eldon, that's E-L-D-O-N at com, or by joining me on Facebook at Dr. Eldon Taylor. We do sincerely appreciate your thoughts. Uh, They contribute immensely to our show, so thank you. Now to today's show, The Meaning of Christmas, with our special guest and a favorite of mine, Professor Amy Jill Levine. Professor Levine has been with us before, but for those of you who may have missed her appearance, let me tell you a little about her. Amy Jill Levine is University Professor of New Testament and Jewish Studies, East Rhodes and Leona B. Carpenter, E. Rhodes and Leona B. Carpenter, Professor of New Testament Studies, and Professor of Jewish Studies at Vanderbilt Divinity School and College of Arts and Science. She is also affiliate affiliated professor, Center for the Study of Jewish-Christian Relations, Cambridge, UK. Her books include The Misunderstood Jew, The Church and the Scandal of the Jewish Jesus, The Meaning of the Bible, What the Jewish Scriptures and the Christian Old Testament Can Teach Us, The New Testament, Methods and Meanings, The Enigmatic Parables of a Controversial Rabbi and the 13-volume edited Feminist Companions to the New Testament and Early Christian Writing. Dr. Levine is also co-editor of the Jewish Annotated New Testament. She has recorded three sets of lectures for the Teaching Company, Great Lecture Series, and, and I have viewed all three, worked my way through them, and I highly recommend them to you. Holding her B.A. from Smith College and M.A. and Ph.D. from Duke University, she has honorary doctorates from the University of Richmond, the Episcopal Theological Seminary of the Southwest, the University of South Carolina, Upstate, Drury University, and Christian Theological Seminary. She describes herself as a Yankee Jewish feminist. Obviously, she is eminently qualified to discuss the meaning of Christmas, so on that, let's get her in here. Welcome back to Provocative Enlightenment, Professor Amy Jill Levine.
3: I'm delighted to be back with you.
0: <laughs> well, it's indeed my pleasure. Now, you heard today's spotlight. What are your thoughts on Merry Christmas versus Happy Holidays?
3: <laughs> um, I don't personally have a problem with it. I'd rather have somebody say Merry Christmas than get out of my way, or how much does this cost? Um, But I I also want to be sensitive to people who are clearly not celebrating Christmas, uh, because that would presume that uh, they have to conform to what everybody else is saying. So if you walk up to, to an Orthodox rabbi, and you would be able to tell that by the way he's dressed, I think Merry Christmas would probably not be the best greeting, and we might at that point be a little more culturally sensitive and say, Happy Hanukkah.
0: Interesting. You know, I w- I went out, of course, this year to buy some cards, and I was at a very nice uh, card store. I'm not going to give them a commercial, but well-known branded card store. Looking for Christmas, and I found two Christmas selections among oh thirty or forty. The rest of them all were all about holidays. So, do you think that the traction toward holidays is going to? Overtake uh, the notion of Christmas because of our sensitivity or PC speech uh, regarding. Oh, I doubt it.
3: I think Christmas is doing just fine, um, yeah. and and I don't find most people, at least in my own experience, and I live in Tennessee, uh, to be worried about uh, offending folks with the the idea of Merry Christmas. Um, it, sure, say Merry Christmas if that's what's in your heart. But do not say it if you want to insist uh, to the person to whom you're speaking, hey, by the way, if you don't believe in Jesus, you're going to go to hell. So oh, I totally concur to, with that. Right, a lot depends just on the tone by which somebody offers that greeting.
0: All right. Christmas means many things to different people, Professor, and it surprises me sometimes that everyone assumes Christmas has only one meaning. In America, Christmas is supposed to be the time of joy, excitement, family, and and I guess overeating. That's become a bit of a tradition. But Christmas isn't all laughs everywhere in the world. Some countries have some really creepy and disturbing Christmas myths and legends. I I think among the creepiest of Christmas myths is this story of Grilia, the mountain giantess, a troll. According to Icelandic folklore, she travels from the mountains in search of naughty children. When she finds them, she abducts them and eats them. Where did this whole naughty or nice myth come from?
3: (laughs) Well, it certainly doesn't come from the Bible, which also doesn't give us Santa Claus who's who's making out a list of who's naughty and nice. Um, For me, the idea of uh, some stranger creeping down my chimney at night, I find fairly creepy. Um, So. So even, even when we think of, of stuff that we have in the United States, we worry. Most cultures have uh, what we might call the boogeyman or, or somebody who comes and punishes naughty children. They're cross-cultural phenomena, and they're designed to keep kids in line. Um, should that be equated with Christmas? Absolutely not. Um, but look, I'm a biblicist, not an Icelandic myth- myth- mythology specialist, so I, yeah, I'm happier if we can just stay with say the Christmas stories in Matthew and Luke.
0: All right, Christmas is usually considered a Christian festival, but it's probably the most synchronized holidays in the calendar. So synchronized, many would argue, that in fact, the Puritans banded in England during Cromwell's dictatorship from 1647 to 1660. They also outlawed the holiday in Boston from 1659 to 1681. The Puritans recognized, albeit sourly, that Christmas was about a Christian as a pentacle. Why was this so, Professor?
3: Um, Christmas as we know it today is not biblical. And a number of traditions, and not just the Puritans, but a number of Protestant traditions today, conservative Protestant traditions, um, don't engage in the celebration of Christmas at all. Uh, the whole December 25th thing doesn't come into any form of Christian worship for the first couple of centuries after Jesus. Um, it's already some sort of appropriation of a pagan festival, so pagans celebrating uh, the birth of the sun god, S-U-N, not S-O-N. Um, and, and what Christianity did, and what any decent good religion does, is as it spreads uh, and it encounters traditions that are not part of its own history. It has two choices. It can either attempt to wipe out the tradition, or it can attempt to colonize it or to borrow it. And what the Church did very wisely is said, oh, we've already got a holiday on the calendar. Let's basically baptize it. And that's how we get December 25th. That's how we get candy canes. That's how we get Christmas trees, mistletoe, uh, not to mention Santa and the Easter bunny. So So what we have here is a form of Christian, we might call it multiculturalism.
0: So, Christianity, for I mean, Christmas, for all intents and purposes, is not necessarily a universal Christian uh, practice. That's what you're saying.
3: I'm saying today, when we use the term Christmas, we're talking about a Christian holiday. That's the Christ part of Christmas. Um, But that the idea of celebrating the coming of light in the middle of winter. Um, or rebirth when, uh, when it looks like the days are getting increasingly short in the Northern Hemisphere. That's going to be a cross-cultural thing. So well, today you're... what we find is a number of people quite secularized who are very happy to put up Christmas trees and eat candy canes and exchange presents, not because they've got anything to do with Jesus, but because they like the idea of celebrating hope and light in the middle of cold and winter.
0: While you're on that, I have to ask you this, uh, Mithras, the cult of the great mother who celebrated uh, uh, the rebirth of the sun, S-U-N, uh, or the Roman festival, uh, the birth of Sol Invictus, um, also participated as groups in the slaughtering of a bull over an open pit where they would partake of its blood and its flesh, literally drinking its blood and eating its flesh, Uh, to celebrate this rebirth of the sun. Is that where sacrament originates? (laughs) A sacrament is something
3: that's holy. Um, We have a number of cases in antiquity of people. um, The the folks who were doing the uh, slaughtering bulls, um, the issue was less eating the blood of the bull than actually bathing in it um, as a form of both rebirth and purification. And is that connected to the idea of baptism? Sure. Sure. Because, again, we have this issue of what cultures do, and frequently we borrow cultural uh, tropes, cultural ideas of food, and cultural ideas of eating. The idea of eating as a sacrament, and depending upon what you eat and when you eat, of course that marks us. I think it was the German philosopher Feuerbach who said, you are what you eat. So um, to eat the, the body and blood of one's Lord made sense outside of Christianity as well as inside of Christianity. And then the various Christian churches had to figure out exactly what that meant and how this particular sacrifice was to be facilitated. And that's stuff that Christianity still debates today, because as you go from church to church, Roman Catholic to Lutheran to Presbyterian to Methodist to Baptist, the whole model of how we understand that eating is going to change.
0: All right. Just to continue a little bit of our history here. Now, uh, these practices predate Christianity by two, three hundred years at least. Uh, so they were adopted by Christian tradition in one way or another. And and, and if we continue that line, um, the 12 days of Christmas between December 25th and January 6th are also similar to the Roman uh, to a Roman uh, pagan festival. Um, is that where you think the tradition of the 12 days of Christmas originated, or is there some other explanation for that?
3: Um, on the 12 days of Christmas, um, it, well, there are the dates from, it's te- technically, the dates from December 25th to January 6th, with January 6th being the date uh, supposedly that the Magi um those uh, Persian astrologers finally showed up to drop off the Christmas presents in Bethlehem. Um, You know, where does this come from? It may well have come from various pagan sources. It may well have developed within the early Church, much similar to the idea of the Eucharist that we were just talking about. Um, It's certainly possible that Jesus could have borrowed that, or his culture could have borrowed that, from the Mithraic tradition. But Jesus himself, a first century Jew, understood what sacrifice was and understood the idea of even giving up his own body as a martyr. So one of the things we have to worry about is how much is being borrowed, how much is being developed uniquely, how much is floating in the air but changed substantially. And the other thing we have to worry about is how do we look at these things over time? Uh, Surely people in the first century were not worried about uh, milkmaids milking and drummers drumming. So how much gets
0: added in, how much gets borrowed? You you know, when you look at the evolutionary psychological aspect of uh, culture and religion, you see that it seems that in order for something to be successful, an idea, a myth, uh, uh, a story, uh, it needs to incorporate a basis broad enough that is already accepted by a population uh, for it to gain traction. And it, do you think that that has any explanatory power and understanding why there are so there is so much um, and ante- so many antecedents from earlier cultures that are involved in Christianity?
3: That's certainly part of it, so that when we take, for example, the idea of a miraculous birth, we. Um, Alexander the Great was accorded a miraculous birth, so with Julius Caesar and Augustus Caesar, and for those of you who do mathematics, Pythagoras, um, it, we have miraculous births of various sorts uh, in the Scriptures of Israel. So the birth of Isaac to the very postmenopausal menopausal Sarah being, being one example of that. The Dead Sea Scrolls talk about miraculous births of people like Melchizedek and Enoch. So, yes, that idea is already around. But what makes it interesting, at least to me, is that each time we have an example, uh, the people who tell those stories put their own distinct stamp on it. So whereas the birth story of Jesus has commonalities with some of these other other miraculous births, it also has its distinct aspects. And those aspects are the ones that have to gain some sort of cultural traction.
0: Okay, now, where parthenogenesis is concerned, you named a number of people, but other religions—Buddha, uh, for example—supposedly um, his mother was touched by the trunk of a white elephant, and that's how he was conceived. Um, these stories of virgin birth—they—they uh, they seem to give rise to the necessity, or, or to a recognized necessity that man has, that he must, in order to look up to someone, they must be something more than flesh and blood like the rest of us. Why is that?
3: <laughs> um, I think that's that's our imagination. In antiquity, uh, things actually worked pretty much in reverse. Uh, Alexander the Great was not born with stories of his miraculous birth, but to the contrary, If somebody did something extraordinary, then the ancient imagination thought, oh, there's no possible way that a human being could do this. That person must have a divine parent. Um, So for the most part, uh, for our human figures who were recorded miraculous births, the birth stories come late in the biography. What do we do today? We think about, well, how did this person da vinci for example or martin luther king jr or rosa parks anybody who's changed society do we think i wonder what their parents taught them i wonder what the spark was that allowed them to rise above everyone else and actually make that change that was needed actually create that painting discover that that new scientific formula what is it about us that we can't recognize our own human potential but somehow we need to attribute it to something divine.
0: Now, according to what I've read, uh, there is some evidence uh, that virgin birth is possible. And um, you know, I always look at these things with great suspicion, but what are your thoughts? Um,
3: <laughs> yeah, the technical term is parthenogenesis. Uh, right. Parthenos is, is the Greek term Uh, usually translated virgin, and it's the term that the Gospel of Matthew uses. In fact, the New Testament does not give us a virgin birth. It gives us a virginal conception. Um, So can a woman conceive without sexual intercourse? Sure, Um, because there are various mechanisms by which the sperm can enter uh, into the woman's cervix and and then fertilize an egg. Uh, Is that the best way of doing it? I don't think so. It's certainly not the most interesting Um, Do we know technically what Mary's status was? No, we do not. Because that's the story that history can't penetrate.
0: I love your humor. We've got a break coming up, Professor. When we come back, I want to get into some of the symbology and, of course, ultimately into your interpretation of what this season is or should be all about. We're speaking with Professor Amy Jill Levine about the meaning and traditions of Christmas. We have a couple of links for you at ProvocativeEnlightenment.com, leading to more information about our guest, including her books and activities. Now, we have a video for you in our chat room featuring our guest discussing parables. So if you're not in the chat room already, now is the time to get on over there, and you can do that by simply going to ProvocativeEnlightenment.com forward slash chat. Okay, do please stay tuned. We'll be right back.
2: You're listening to Provocative Enlightenment with Elton Taylor. New scientific research has repeatedly demonstrated that the power of your mind can do wonderful things if you believe in yourself. Indeed, it can literally change the brain, increasing cognitive abilities, rewiring connections, and even adding gray matter. And all you have to do is invest a little time in tuning your mind. The perfect toolkit for just that is the patented and proven effective InnerTalk technology. InnerTalk changes the way you talk to yourself, And that changes everything. For when you truly believe in yourself and your own abilities, magic happens. Inner Talk has over 300 programs to choose from, ranging from health and wellness to prosperity and success, from accelerated learning to relationships, from habits and addictions to spirituality. Remove the doubt and fear now. Go to InnerTalk.com today.
0: Unlock the power of your mind. This is Provocative Enlightenment with Elvin Taylor. Welcome back. If you just joined us, we're chatting with Professor Amy Jill Levine about the meaning and traditions of Christmas. We have a couple of links for you at ProvocativeEnlightenment.com that lead to more information about our guests. Be sure to check them out. Now, we ask our guests for their favorite music, music that has some true significance to them, in this instance, their favorite Christmas music. So we just played some of Bing Crosby performing Do You Hear What I Hear, Tell us, Professor, why is this music important to you, and how does it inform us about who you are?
3: I love Christmas carols. I, I think they're terrific. Um, uh, I like the more religious ones. I, I'm also fairly partial to some of the secular ones that we hear this time of year, like silver bells. Um, I like Christmas carols that have questions to them. Do you hear what I hear? Do you see what I see? Uh, because they, they provoke, they should provoke listeners. Um, ideally they will provoke listeners to go back and actually look at the Bible to see what the Bible says um, and then talk with their friends about what do you see in the text? What do you hear from that, this text? What messages are you taking?
0: That's wonderful. That's very interesting. Let me ask you this, since this is the I mean, the closing piece where we pick this song up, talks about the star. Tradition holds that three eastern kings, uh, followed a shooting star to the manger where the infant Jesus was resting. <laughs> Generally, many scholars say that's just false, both historically and and, and scripturally. So, you'll know, flesh that out for us. Is it is there any truth to this story?
3: Oh gosh, um, there's like half a dozen things wrong in, in just that that summary. Uh, the, the the manger and the shepherds are in the Gospel of Luke. Uh, but the star is in the Gospel of Matthew, and Matthew has Mary and Joseph in a house, and it looks like the house already belongs to Mary and Joseph. No problem in Matthew with no room at the inn. Um, it, the the Magi are not kings. Matthew would have been appalled to think that they were kings, because Matthew generally doesn't like kings. He says, the kings of the earth are the ones who lord it over you. The Magi are Magi. Uh, they are Persian astrologers. They may well be priests. Um uh, and they represent, for Matthew, the pagan world. Are there three? Not necessarily. There could have been seven. There could have been 12. Uh, the reason we get three is because of the three gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. In fact, in antiquity, when when Christianity took over the Roman Empire, frequently patrons would have themselves painted as the magi coming to visit baby Jesus, because that way you could deck out yourself, your wife, and your kids in fancy clothes. Um, are they following the star? Well, not star- stars the way we would think about them. Stars are giant balls of hydrogen gas. And if we think about how Matthew says, right, the star stopped over the house, if a giant ball of hydrogen gas just stopped over your house, not only your house, but the entire world would be immediately incinerated. So stars back then, people thought of stars as sentient beings, uh, perhaps uh, righteous people who then became part of the stars of the heaven. And we have hints of that idea in the book of Daniel. So one might think about the stars, one might think of, of a being. Um, I tend to think about Tinkerbell in, in the Mary Martin Peter Pan show, a little <laughs> ball of light that you can follow. Stars, as we know, do not function like GPS systems, but in the Gospel of Matthew, that star does. It drops the Magi off in Jerusalem, and then helps them get a couple of miles away to get to Bethlehem to find out where Mary and Joseph is. If we so, start trying to find scientific evidence for all this stuff, We're simply miscuing. We're not reading the Gospels as they should be read, which is not as a book of science, but as a book of profound theological storytelling.
0: Allegories.
3: Allegories in part, or midrash, or parable, or something that leads us to a greater understanding of divine and human nature.
0: Especially human in this instance, I would think. I think so. Okay, <laughs> all right. Uh, the year Jesus was born has been the subject of controversy for years, as some scholars argue that his, you know, birth is plus or minus 32 years of O.B.C.E. However, the biblical account has him born in the days of Herod, and that would put it 4 BCE. According to your own investigation, what are we to believe about the birth of the year of Christ?
3: Right. Well, um, the, day, the date that we have now was set by the Scythian monk um, whose name, he comes into history as Dionysius Exigius, but it really means Dennis the Short. Um, and, and he got the year wrong. Uh, Matthew had, dates the birth of Jesus, as you point out, to the reign of Herod the Great, and Herod dies in 4 BCE. It, even the idea that Jesus dies at 33 is a problem, Um Luke tells us he was about 30 when he begins his public activity, and John has a three-year ministry, so 33 possible. Um, We're better on the dating of his death. That that would be between 26 and 36 of the Common Era, and we know that because that's when Pontius Pilate was in office. We don't know how old Jesus was. In the Gospel of John, some of his opponents come up to him and say, how can you say you know Abraham? You're not yet 50? There's a big difference between being 50 and being 33. So what year was Jesus born? We simply do not know.
0: Let me ask you this. There are many academics that argue that the story of Jesus itself is uh, false to fact, that uh, it's an invention. Um, and or his crucifixion was a Play and acted in some small area, uh, private audience. Uh, where do you come down on a scholarship basis about the actual life of uh, this Jesus of Nazareth?
3: I have no doubt that there was a fellow named Jesus, that he was from Nazareth, uh, that he gathered a group of followers, and that he was crucified by Pontius Pilate. Um, I, I see no reason to doubt that we have sources dating very, very close to that time period. For example, the letters of Paul, uh, which, attest to the, which attest to Jesus. And Paul talks about knowing people who knew Jesus. If there were no Jesus, we have to invent somebody else to make up all those parables. Uh, that seems silly to me. Um, why invent somebody when you've got already Jesus who was there? The question is not, for me, did Jesus exist or did he not exist? I think he existed. The question is, how much of the gospel material that's attributed to him did he actually do or say? And that's always going to be a problem with history, because the history is written by people who remember, and remembering is always fuzzy. We sometimes forget details. We sometimes add them in later, uh, sometimes to embellish the story, sometimes because we think, oh, this must have happened. So the job, then, of the historian is to try to figure out, we have four gospels, they do not all agree how much goes back to historical bedrock, how much was added in later.
0: And they were just but f- four books that were chosen of hundreds that were possible candidates. Is that not true?
3: Um, hundreds may be a bit generous. We do know that there are other texts that were floating around, uh, in the, at least by the early 2nd century, that did not make the canonical cut. Uh, but most of those stories are not about Jesus' actions. They're more secret teachings, uh produced by the the Jesus following the crucifixion, or indeed, in some cases, denying the crucifixion. But were there hundreds of people who were telling stories about him, uh, say, within 50 years of his death? That would not surprise me in the least. All
0: right. For a few minutes, let's uh, pursue our, our fairy tales about Christmas. The Christmas tree, for example. And my understanding is that's based on an ancient Druid theme. Flesh that story out for us, will you?
2: Yeah,
3: well, I'm certainly not an expert on Druid tradition, but the idea of uh, bringing fir trees into the house um, does develop in in the northern parts of Europe. Uh, It's a sign of that, along with mistletoe, signs of fertility, signs of ongoing life. Um, So here, you're an early Christian, you come across people who bring trees into their homes. Are you going to say, don't do that, or are you going to say, it's a great idea, let's call it a Christmas tree, and we'll put the Star of Bethlehem up on the top? Much easier way of dealing with cultural appropriation.
0: Okay, now the Star of Bethlehem. <clears throat> uh, we discussed that a bit, but uh, yeah. do you believe there was any such thing as a Star of Bethlehem?
3: What we have in antiquity um, uh, are, are signs attributed to the, the birth of heroes. And we've already talked about how if if you rose above various people because you were an emperor or a great scientist or a wonderful mathematician, uh, people would attribute to you a special birth. They would also attribute to you portents at the time that you were born, as well as portents at the time that you died. So if you were an extra special person, of course there would be some heavenly sign about how great you were. Um, Was there actually a star of Bethlehem? Well, Matthew's the only one to mention it. it seems odd to me that these particular Persian astrologers picked up on the star, but nobody else saw it. That's a little bit weird. Uh, but it does fit Matthew's themes. So I think, it's for me, it's more helpful to look at the star of Bethlehem as a story people told in order to talk about how important Jesus was, rather than as some sort of scientific something that we now have to go back and find by talking about supernovas or planetary conjunctions
0: okay in a nutshell you correct me if i'm wrong with the exception of whether or not there was a real jesus we we basically have a childhood story a myth surrounding christmas that involves all the young people with all the miracles etc and so forth that would be necessary to justify the son of god coming to earth and setting up for some special festival occasion. Have I got that right?
3: No, I'm not so sure about that, Uh, because there are a number of books in the New Testament that do not find such a spectacular birth to be necessary. The Gospel of Mark, which is most likely our earliest gospel, starts with Jesus as an adult coming to John the Baptist for baptism. Uh, True, true, true. John does not have a Christmas story, and Paul does not have a Christmas story.
1: True, so true, can true. One I'm, be not, I'm not a
3: follower of Jesus without sure.
0: Okay, I'm I, I'm not suggesting that that's true of the biblical literature or the historical literature. I'm basically suggesting that's true of the average understanding of what Christmas represents, where we have come to today. That indeed, the story of Christmas, um, for all intent and purposes, with the exception of whether or not. There was Jesus. This is largely myth.
3: Um, was Jesus born? Absolutely. Was his father named Joseph and his mother named Mary? Um, I see no reason that that would be incorrect. These are common names at the time.
0: How Do you much believe the that rem- they were born in a manger?
3: Oh, no. Well, it, you know, it doesn't say he was born in a manger. Um, Luke says Mary placed him in a manger. And I think that's actually a pun um manger as we know from from french means to eat a manger is a feeding trough so the issue here is symbolism jesus will give as the story goes his body as bread for the world how much more fitting then that the body that the baby is placed in a feeding trough to symbolize the feeding that he will later provide um so if we try to find history behind it
0: Well, I think perhaps we're using different terminology for the same or your reference is different than mine. I know that if I go out into the street, I go down to Walmart and I start talking to people about Christmas, the Christmas tree, the star of Bethlehem, uh, Jesus born in a manger. And they're all buying these little, uh, you know, displays of Jesus with the animals around him that largely they accept this to be a true story. When indeed it's it's a myth uh, that was necessary in order to um, embellish the nature, as you've already explained, of these these lives that just transcend what we think of as possible by the just a simple human. Uh, that, that's ne- all I'm right. trying to say here. But yeah, let's was it do necessary,
3: this. Necessary? No. Was it helpful? Absolutely.
0: Okay. So let me ask you about this. Who is Santa? Where does he come from?
3: (laughs) He certainly doesn't come from the Bible. Um, There's a a Turkish bishop um, who comes into history as St. Nicholas, uh, who was known for distributing food and toys. Um, And then the whole Santa thing developed substantially because of advertising. Um, So Santa, as we have him today, is just a really good marketing do we do with the people who are at Walmart or parents putting their kids on on Santa's lap and all that other stuff? I want to go back to that Christmas carol about do you hear what I hear and do you see what I see? So for me, the major issue was not did it happen or did it not happen? Because fundamentalists are going to go in one direction and secularists are going to go in another and that becomes a non-starter. I'm more anxious to say to the people who do believe that it happened, what difference does it make in your life? How does it change you? And if All it does is deplete your pocketbook uh, and make you want more and more. Then I think you've got Christmas wrong nine ways to Sunday.
0: Amen. Uh, Well, you're talking about fundamentalists, I guess, you know, I've got a question out of the chat room that I'm going to interject or trend right this moment with. Uh, But the question simply says, uh, ask why Constantine split the Jews between those that believed in Jesus and those who didn't and what the net effect of that was.
3: Um, Constantine himself was was not so much the problem because Constantine allowed Jews to continue to be Jewish and all that. Um, After Constantine, things got a lot more difficult. Uh, I'm always worried, and here Constantine would be a good example, of what happens when religion gets into bed with the state. Um, Because religion functions, I think, at its best when it stands outside the governmental system, outside the political system, as a critique of that system. But once religion gets an army and once religion is mandated from the top down, then it becomes co-opted.
0: All right. I I think an important point to make here is uh, most people believe that Christmas is the most important day of the year to Christians. Is that true? And if not, why and what is?
3: Um, I don't think it should be. Um, Heaven forbid that I or anyone else would speak for all Christians. But it seems to me, at least in terms of the liturgical year, the most important days, and I want to put them together Um, are Good Friday, Holy Saturday, and Easter Sunday. Uh, Because the church doesn't need so much the celebration of Christmas as we already see from the New Testament itself. What it really needs is the cross and the resurrection, because
0: those are the substantive moments on the Christian calendar. Okay, i got a couple of lighthearted ones for you, Professor. I once heard, you know... Uh, A fellow was explaining Columbus coming to America, and of course he was searching for India, and that's why Indians have their name. Now, this this person happened to be a Native American, and he said to me, you know, I'm sure glad he wasn't trying to discover turkey. (laughs) (laughs) So I think, look, the Christmas feast in America seems to be predominantly based around cooking a turkey. Why a turkey?
3: Um, the, the people I hang around would typically have ham on both Christmas and Easter. Um, you know, uh, basically you take what you've got, um, and sometimes you take something bigger than what you would normally have, and you can feed more people with most turkeys than you can with a capon. Um, again, we are what we eat. Um, why ham on Christmas? Why ham on Easter? Well, that actually symbolizes for a number of Gentile Christians so-called freedom from the Torah and a breaking away from Judaism
0: hmm i didn't i I didn't realize that how did jewish people see christmas
3: (laughs) um (laughs) again it depends upon the jew that you ask. the tradition of my family is to go out for chinese food because those are the restaurants that will be open um you know some (laughs) of us really like it when i was a kid i would always go over to my friends houses to help them trim the tree never had to worry about taking it down so i had the best of both worlds (laughs) um (laughs) You know, some people love it, the light, the the joy that you see on people's faces. Um, uh, Other people find it offensive and overbearing uh, for the same reason that some Christians do, because it's become so invested in the market and the buying and the selling. Um, Some Jews find the whole thing confusing, uh, because we're not sure whether the focus is on Santa Claus or the baby Jesus. Um, Here's an opportunity for Christians to make clear to those who are not Christians, what the spirit of Christmas is supposed to be. And it's got to be something more than consumerism.
0: Let's go straight to that, then. I don't think there's anything more important in this show. As the scholar of Jewish and Christian history and and, and more, what should Christmas mean?
3: If we think about the traditional Christian view, that the divine becomes flesh in Jesus, that, that the God, the one who created heaven and earth, is somehow present in this vulnerable child uh, born during the years of the Roman Empire, then I think we have something worth latching onto, because what the Christmas story asks us, or asks us to see, or asks us to hear, is, do you want to worship the man who called himself Son of God, Augustus Caesar, the Emperor of Rome? Or is there a different type of God you want to worship? Um, One who is found in humble settings rather than elite settings. Uh, One who comes to provide hope for people rather than to take taxes from them. Uh, One who comes to proclaim the love that the God of Israel manifests rather than the one who says, I'm going to conquer you by military might. Christmas asks, basically, what God do you believe in? And that's a question worth asking.
0: And the spirit of Christmas, therefore, should be asking that question?
3: Not only asking it, but then answering it correctly and living it out. Uh, The God who tells us already in Leviticus, not only love your neighbor as yourself, but love the stranger who dwells among you because you were strangers in the land of Egypt. And then we take it one more step with Jesus, who says not only love your neighbor, but also
0: love your enemy. Is there anything you'd like to add to our understanding of Christmas before I uh, end this conversation, Professor?
3: I'd like to get beyond the did it happen or did it not happen, because as I noted, that's a non-starter, and get to the greater point of, have you actually read what the Bible says about it? Have you actually thought about what it means in your own heart? Have you thought about how you are manifesting the spirit of Christmas when you go to the mall? Um... What does it mean to celebrate the birth of God? That's the better Christian
0: question, I think. Amen. Amen. I want everyone to know how to reach out to you and learn more about you, and your books, your lectures, appearances, and so forth. I love what you write. I love what you do. I love your courses. So please share with us how best to learn more about you and your work.
3: Um, One can always look me up on the Vanderbilt University website um, to find out where I am. I have a Facebook page that I don't quite know how it works because I'm not terribly technologically adept. But every six months or so, my daughter puts in my six-month schedule. And if people write on my Facebook page, my daughter, who triages that page about once a week, sends me particular questions or concerns. So I'm pretty easy to find.
0: All right. That's Facebook as... uh... Dr. Amy Jill Levine. I think it's
3: just Amy Jill Levine. The doctor sounds pretentious.
0: All right, Amy Jill Levine on Facebook, and I suggest you all connect with uh, the professor. I want to thank you for your work and for your willingness to share it with us, and I love your humor, professor. Always, a pleasure thank you to for talk joining you. Thank us. You. <laughs> all right, well, we've come to the end of another episode of Provocative Enlightenment. I want to thank all of you for joining us today. I do hope you enjoyed our show and we'll join us again next week. Same time and same place. And do tell your friends. Let's have them join us as well. We also love your suggestions and be sure to tune in next week when Mama Santa Claus will be here. And she'll be giving a lot of inner talk programs away to solve your problems. Okay, until next week, wherever you are in the world, remember, believing in yourself always matters. Provocative Enlightenment has been brought to you by Progressive Awareness Research and other sponsors. Provocative Enlightenment is a syndicated show and appears on other networks. For a schedule of showtimes, visit ProvocativeEnlightenment.com. If you're interested in becoming a sponsor, write to Elden at EldenTaylor.com.